she seems uh, absolutely not naive. And uh, these films are not sort of small films that should grow and uh, and that are not yet there. It's a different cinema. It's a different art form. It's a projection art form. And in every moment of film history, cinema is perfect. I mean, it does its thing very well. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Europe's biggest festival of restored films is back, and some of it will be playing at your house. I talk with Marianne Lewinsky of Il Cinema Ritrovato in Bologna. And from 16mm to Blu-ray, Kit Parker has been there rescuing orphan films from obscurity. We mark the 50th anniversary in the business of one of the good guys. You know what would make you a really good guy? Subscribing to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice and leaving us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guy. Cinema Ritrovato, the cinema rediscovered. It's Europe's largest festival devoted to restored and rediscovered films, now in its 35th year. Held every summer in Bologna, Italy, this year it's showcasing over 400 films, shorts, features, and documentaries from the very beginnings of cinema to the present day. And with travel still being a bit of an issue this year, it's also offering an online component for viewers around the world. To learn more about the festival, which runs July 20th through 27th, I spoke with one of its four directors and its curator of silent film, Marianne Lewinsky, in Zurich. It started in the, in the 80s, it's now 35 years going on. And it started very small at the moment when really archives started to look at their collections and restoration of silent films, and not only of the classics that are in the books, but of unknown parts of film history started to be restored. In the Netherlands Film Museum, uh, in the collection, uh, in the Desmet collection, a lot of Italian silent films were rediscovered all the diva film, a lot of comedies, a lot of non-fiction. And it started actually as a, as a, as a three-day affair of very young, very enthusiastic people who wanted to restore films. 
And uh, the first two guests, it's very mythical, the first, Gina Marie Trovato, the first two international guests were Fred Jung, a collector and cinephile from Luxembourg, and Eno Patalas, a German pioneer of film restoration. Hmm. And uh, now it has really become, uh, I think, worldwide the, the most important event about um, all of film history. There is one section with new films and uh, documentaries about film history or about personalities called documentaries and documents. Yes, I noticed there. There's a, like a film about uh, Oscar Michaud, a new new documentary about him, and there's film about Os- Os- Oscar Michaud, and uh, there's a film about Romy Schneider. So uh, there are also there's also a section of works by Bill Morrison, who works with old films. Right. So these are this is quite recent uh, because it's also it, it, it has uh, there's a new interest in old films. It has changed a lot also with technology. People simply simply can work more easy with archives now. Yeah, last year obviously was a uniquely yeah. bad uh, circumstance. Yeah. Actually, we we managed to make the festival, which was which, which was miraculous. Uh, it was at the end of August, and I can tell you, the first day everybody cried. People were so sort of. It was so incredible to be in Bologna uh, to see films together. Uh, the musicians hadn't played for months in front of the public. And everybody was simply so moved. Of course, there were two big changes. One is that uh, the festival uh, was not smaller in terms of films of programming, uh, but uh, of audience. Uh, many the people from the from from the U.S. couldn't come. People from Asia couldn't come. So right. it was like uh, twenty or twenty-five percent of the of the. I mean, we had 4,000 accreditations in the, the, the previous year, and this would be like a, a quarter of it, I think. Uh-huh. And what had changed is this freedom of access, because uh, now uh, we had to introduce ticketing for contact tracing and for distancing to count how many people would go into a venue. And this will continue now. Right. Uh, so uh, this incredible freedom uh, and innocence, and uh, um, we, we we really look back at this period like uh, how amazing it was. And people simply walked around Bologna and would drop into a film, yeah. you know, with their badge. And uh, and now this is not possible at the moment. And last year it went very smoothly. I mean, there was not one case. It was. It was a beautiful atmosphere, and for silent films, uh, we would never, we will never, never again have. We had the opera house to play in, and now the opera of Bologna is a is a beautiful uh, venue from the 18th century, a marvelous acoustics, a great piano, Steinway. I mean, it was just so beautiful. Now. Did you do any kind of online component with last year's festival? Yes, there was an online component, and there will be one also this year. The program is not yet disclosed, 
but okay. on behalf of Nitrate Wheel, I have been doing a bit of intelligence. <laughs> and uh, uh, there are two silent films I know that will, will go online. One of them is My Cousin, the Caruso film. Okay. Enrico Caruso. Uh, and uh, he was an excellent actor. It's a bit uh, crazy to have a silent film with Caruso, who is known for his voice. Oh, of course, the music is uh, crucial. And the other one is certainly Figaro, the, uh, a French silent film from, from a beautiful film from the late uh, 20s by Gaston Ravel. And uh, these two films will certainly be online. Okay. But for the rest and for all the program, uh, please go to the, to the website of the, of the festival. I think you can also read uh, the, the catalog and the program there. How do audiences react to the the programs generally? You know, of course, uh, I, I'm sort of the impresario uh, behind the films are like my stars and my actors, and <laughs> for me, it's it's very uh, it's very mysterious how the uh, how the audiences react. That that there is, of course, you feel when uh, screening is going sort of when the public is in rapture. You feel that, and uh, and in the end, everybody sort of goes, comes out with starry eyes and, and say, we, we, we want to see only silent films from the rest of our lives, so, <laughs> things like that, and people really... <laughs> so. But what I find really amazing is that people have completely different needs and tastes. I mean, if you ask, I remember uh, asking uh, David Kerr from the from MoMA, what was for you the the best film of, the, of uh, this year for the silent section or so, and he said the title that I I found really the worst, you know, that a film uh, that that I had that I had screened basically as a as a, a devil's card, yeah, you know. <laughs> And and so people really need different things. And uh, I remember, for example, uh, Peter von Bach, uh, our our wonderful and and uh, uh, director who passed away. Uh, now I think it has been six years ago, seven years ago, and whom we miss terribly. He sometimes came to a to a, a program of early cinema, and he invariably fell asleep <laughs> immediately. He, I mean, there are people who like films, long films from the 20s, sort of drama, stars, uh, uh, love story, or you know, mystery, things like that. And the, the, the kind of different, uh, um, the completely different, uh, how you say, constitutional temper, temperament or, right. or impact of early films, for them is sort of not, they, they don't get it. And for me, it's a bit the other way around. I'm I'm getting really bored, except when the film is as good as as Eroticon, or as good as Vampire, or as good as Chute de la Maison Usher. Then I sort of, if if it's films that visually give me something, then I sort of stay with them. But the film that has a, that just goes for the plot and some and some production values. I mean. You see ten of them, 
and, and then, okay. While an early film can always enchant me because it's strange. Yes. These are weird films. And mysterious because we are not meant to see them. I mean, we, it's not, it hasn't, these films are not made for us. A film from 1901 has been made for an for audience from 1901. And it's kind of illegal that we, uh, that we sit here and we watch these this, uh, this films made with the light from 1901. And this gives, to the experience, gives for me a, 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 big, a, a big tension and a big energy. And I understand completely if people don't don't need it, don't like it, don't see it. It's it's like early and sort of short films can be very intense and very mysterious, and I like that. No, that's I mean that's the true time machine, and like you say, yeah. I mean, they're not they're not really for us. They're you're you're seeing them through kind of a screen of later film language that they don't have yet. And, you know, having to put yourself in the in the mindset of the people for whom this was the wondrous thing that no one had ever seen before. Yes, and of course, um, I mean, I I I have found that these films are absolutely not naive. Right. And uh, these films are not sort of small films that should grow, and uh, and that are not yet there. It's a, different cinema. It's a different art form. It's a projection art form and in every moment of film history, cinema is perfect. I mean, it does its thing very well. Yeah. It does a different thing. It does a different thing in 1901 and in 1921 and in the, in the 50s. And it's very beautiful to, to, to see uh, an animated photograph we are really now in an overload of moving images. <laughs> and the purity of the first films uh, cleans, sort of clears and cleans our eyes. It makes, uh, it, it, it gives us back a sort of a vision that is uh, stronger and less cluttered. Well, let's talk about the silent film portion, which I should say is only one part of a very large festival that includes talkies, a whole series devoted to Herman Mankiewicz, a series of independent Indian films from the 70s and 80s, and so on. But speaking of 1901, there's a number of programs devoted to films from 120 years ago. Tell me about that. And we actually have uh, for one program, which is a program I managed to recreate, uh, uh, a program that was screened in Bologna in 1901. And it's not films from 1901, it's films from the end of the 19th century because these films would have a long commercial life. Right. Uh, the, the Lumière views, they, they would be in catalog up to 1907, basically. Uh, but these films we will screen open air and with a projector from 1901 <laughs> and hand, yes, hand cranked. Wow. So uh, for for some of these films, we really try to to make uh, an experience. Not, I mean, you can never uh, you, you you don't time travel, and we ourselves are completely different sure. spectators with a different uh, uh, experience in moving images. But uh, to recreate a historical program is always excellent for the films. If you go and say, we make a program only comedies, 
you really kill the film. Yeah. Because after the, the third short comedy, you simply don't want to see the fourth one. It's done. <laughs> well, and it's and not it's not how people would have seen them then. They would have seen a a, vari- a varied program. Exactly. So, yeah. What's tell me about these nineteen oh one programs? What are they? Actually, it uh, uh, we have been doing the the, the hundred years ago series uh, now for fifteen years. But we start in, in 1903. It was Tom Gunning who did the first, the first go. And I uh, thought we, we had missed a good beginning, so we, 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 we launched a new series in uh, 2016 to say we do now, from the beginning, 1896. So uh, uh, we, do, we go again year by year because... The thing is that if you if you make a, a, a selection of films from one year, you really can do research. What has been going on in that year? And uh, the thing is, in the first, let's say, 15 years, cinema changes so fast that it is really exciting to see year by year the films. Right. And it's completely different from what you read in the books. Yeah. All right, so you have the series of 1901 films, a lot of short films, and then, you've, as you say, you've got the uh, Centennial series of films from 1921. And, I mean, it, it, talk about a huge difference. You really are starting to have drama, you know, full-length, by our standards, dramas of psychological depth and acuity, uh, you know, in a way that... Would, would have been unimaginable to people in 1901. They, they wouldn't have had the ability to watch a film and even take it in. Yeah. People who saw it in 1921 had come up through all the years of film. Yes, of course. I mean, there are, the shift, the basic shift is, is in 1913, basically, with, uh, with big diva films uh, coming in and so on. Uh, but it's really amazing what goes on in 20 years of film history. And uh, it's very interesting to have now, it was completely unplanned, but to have these two series now running, I don't know for how long, in parallel, is really amazing. Yeah. Um, I tell you, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of early cinema. And uh, I think the percentage, I mean, the, the, uh, of good films, is best in the first years. I mean, they are <laughs> so be- these films are so beautiful. They are so strong. There's, for example, it's not in the 1901 series, but in the in the restorations. It's a film from 1905, a little pate, two little pate films, uh, one from Rome and one uh, Ponte dei Sospiri from Venice. So a little non-fiction, and it's mag- m- m- majestic. It's just perfect. It's uh, 20 meters, and it's of such beauty that uh, you don't need to see many other films in the right. festival, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so if, I, if, you, if you ask me, many people ask me, which film uh, should I go to see? Can you help me? I say, go and see Ponte dei Sospiri. It's one minute, and it's wonderful. Huh. <laughs> You've boiled down an entire 450 film festival into one minute. Um, mm. <laughs> all right, so 1920, let's talk about, yeah, 1921, um, just some of the films that are being shown. I mean, one one that I think is a real uh, 
switch in the time is Eroticon, Moritz Stiller's film, um, yeah. which is really a film that that kind of shows there's the drama of the film, but then you're forced to think about the psychology of the characters, uh, you know, what's going on underneath yeah. for them. Tell me about yeah. that. And I, I probably, I probably, you are right. I probably would trade the one minute film for <laughs> Eroticon because it is, it is unbelievable. It's an unbelievable film uh, uh, by all, uh, all standards. And I'm very, very happy about the restoration. We had this, it was a, a conspiration between the Svenska Film Institute, Jon Wengström. Uh, the, uh, the Prague uh, angle is in with uh, Jean Pomo and Jan Ledetsky uh, for the restoration and, and, and me uh, from the festival really wanting this uh, restoration to happen. And uh, so we have this incredible film, uh, uh, content-wise, have felt uh, like still beside me, breathing and showing me uh, these this lovely, foolish persons with their, with their uh, limited uh, insight into what is going on. It is such an elegant film, and, it, and it's so, uh, so warm and so ironic. And I always have wondered, uh, while, uh, what did Lubitsch really mean when he said, I have learned everything from this film? Right. <laughs> and what he really meant, I think, is how a director uh, treats his uh, characters how, and how he uh, uh, takes into, um, into, the cos- into the relationship uh, the audience, that he uh, makes the audience observe in a very conscious way what is going on, but gives them all this emotions and a lot of beauty. I mean, the, 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 the dresses the, uh, of Dorothea are just incredible. I have always desired her last dress <laughs> in these films. And there was a big discussion after the screening last year who wanted the plissé gown and who wanted the velvet gown <laughs> with, <laughs> with the lace. So there were, it's a very frivolous film and it's a very, very, very human film. You... It, Everything is good. The print now, I really want to talk about the print. Yes, please. The print is a real black and white print with real tints. And so uh, uh, this is what you call a restoration. It's not a digital reproduction, but it is a real sister of what would have been the nitrate print. Okay. And it makes a huge difference. It gives a completely different aesthetic impact. and, uh, uh, And you never wonder... How was the original real? How did it really look like? You don't have to worry about that. You simply sit and watch, and you know that's about that's about it. That was it. Of course, it's different, but right. Not fundamentally. You are in the <laughs> same material, and you are in the same techniques. And uh, a film is bound to its material. A color appears different if it's digital or if it's emulsion or if it's tint and here you see a beautiful print and the music is also very good we'll talk about music uh, in a little bit but uh, some of the other films um, you have you know 1921 you've got the beginnings of 
the whole German expressionist, uh, mm -hmm. you know, period and movement in, in German film, uh, a film that I think in America at least is more heard of than seen, uh, Backstairs or Hintertreppe. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that one. Uh, it is an, it's an amazing thing because uh, it is a production, of course, uh, of Henny Parton, and uh, which, who was a star. Right. And in, I think it's quite crucial that in 1921 it was still possible also in the United States. I mean, Nazimova is the same case. Hayakawa is the same case that uh, actors actually were their own producers. Gives them a huge uh, uh, freedom of of artistic expression. And uh, in Hintertreppe, you have the best of German uh, theater of the time, which was really exciting. Uh, so, yes, now you have uh, Kortner, who is a great actor. And uh, uh, it is a film that it, it's not like, uh, let's say, Dr. Caligari, this kind of where expressionism is very much in the decor. It's uh, it's much more in this, in the light, I think, in the in the in how a decor is used, just as taking or not taking the light in this shadow shadow thing, and of course in the acting, especially of Kortner. Now another one I noticed, uh, you have a film by Carl Anton. Now there's a name that no one is going to recognize. Uh, yeah. but, but we've had a little talk uh, on Nitrateville about Tonka of the Gallows, the Czech yeah. silent film, which is a beautiful film and really yeah. deserves to be better known than it is. Yeah. Um, this is, I guess, his first film from 1921 called Gypsies. Yes. Tell me about that. Gypsies is really the melodrama. It's really, uh, you know, uh, count sort of abducting and raping young girl, pregnancies, uh, abducted babies or exchanged babies and everything. And uh, so it is very, uh, 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 very much uh, a tear jerky, you might say. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but very, very entertaining. And a very beautiful use of landscape. And again, uh, a Ledetsky print. It's a beautiful print, uh, but uh, one of the first Ledetsky prints, so it's real tinting again. And uh, the Prague Film Archive started about 30 years ago, or even a bit more, uh, experimenting with real tints. It was uh, Vladimir Piela, the director then. So... Uh, uh, the two films were restored by the same person, uh, Blazenka Ogoshkova, and she did a marvelous job. And and Anton is of course very interesting, and we are very keen on not making only, presenting only American, French, and German films, but trying to to show also film from minor uh, production countries that might have smaller budgets and. Uh, and sometimes making uh, um, weaker films if you put them on a on a sort of absolute scale, but very interesting films. Right. All right, and then um, I'll leave obs total obscurity here now. Uh, there's there's a, a number of interesting American comedies. You have a new restoration of Keaton's Hard Luck. There's uh, a uh, Betty Arbuckle film that 
no one has seen that comes from Gosfilmofond in Russia called Crazy to Marry. Um, yeah. Tell me about the comedy program. Yes, actually, uh, I mean, with, with uh, 1921, uh, you enter, I mean, uh, 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 we are not doing only film history. In a way, we, we are doing also history to Gour, and you, you have a foreboding of fascism to come of a, of a terrible period of the 20th century, and uh, uh, I always have a need, I uh, also growing older, I, I have a need uh, of consolation, and of course comedy sure. is, a big, <laughs> is a big distraction and a big consolation. So if, uh, usually at one point I look at the, at, at the program of the festival and I say, we have too little comedy. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, we were very lucky that 1921 is a fantastic year for comedy. Actually, we could have put in also Max Lander and others. And, uh, uh, of course, the Fatty Arbuckle uh, film is a real uh, rediscovery, and I'm very happy about the collaboration with uh, the Ghost Film of France. We have two films in the uh, 1921 program that have sort of never been screened in 100 years, nearly, in the West, uh, uh, The Swamp, um, with Sesue Hayakawa, and uh, Crazy to Marry. I haven't seen the film. Yeah. I haven't seen the film because it's only a 35 mil, and uh, and Tavara Svediuk uh, said yes. It's, I have been looking for it and I found it, but I haven't seen it. So <laughs> it will be one of the rare films that will be a real uh, premiere for me to. And it's of course uh, everybody knows in the United States is uh, it's the film that was in the theaters when the when, when the scandal, the so-called scandal about Fatty Arbuckle, started, and it was immediately withdrawn from from the screens and has disappeared ever since. Hmm. Well, tell me about Hard Luck. So this is uh, Lobster Film has been working on a restoration of that. That's one of the Keatons that's in that's been in somewhat rough shape, I know. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, all these films are also Electric House, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, you have films that you can restore because you have wonderful materials. If you have a camera negative or if you have a good first-generation print, you can make a beautiful uh, restoration. But sometimes uh, you have to, you, you go around. And with comedies, sometimes uh, they have been circulating so much. It's, it is amazing that sometimes the best-known films or the most successful films are actually uh, those where you don't, really find good elements. Right. That is a problem. Because they have been recopied and recopied all the time. I mean, comedy was for... for uh, Silent comedy was for most of the time where silent... when nobody was interested in silent films. Silent comedies uh, and slapstick would still be screened all the time for fun. And so it's sometimes really hard to find good elements. Yeah, so so Lobster has been restoring hard luck? They found enough y- material? Yes, I think Bologna tried too, but uh, 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 hard luck was sort of a last-minute rescue action of Lobster. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, we are very happy about that. I mean, they're, they're, really, they're really good friends, you know, that, 
Sure. That find the material, have a lot of connections. and. I was looking also at the uh, Ritrovati e Restorati, re- Recovered and Restored section of the festival. And mm-hmm. there's there's a series of films by Segundo de Chamon, who was kind of the Spanish version of Méliès. There are films, uh, Alberto Capolani, early important uh, French director. Those also came from Ghost Film of Fond. Uh, tell me about, yeah, some of these other silence yes. that... The the Chomon is, is a homage because it's 150 years of his birth. And uh, in a way, it's very interesting, uh, the relationship between Méliès, uh, Chomon, and Gaston Bell, the three masters of uh, of the fairy, of the Senna truc, of the, of, the, of the early animation. Uh, Méliès is really marvelous. From the 19th century until about 1904-5, and then um, I find that uh, Chomon, who who works for Pate at that moment, and Gaston Vell too, in a way they take over, and they have a, a, a slightly different approach. But uh, uh, with them, what really starts to work is color, because Pate uh, uh, starts to work with stencil colored. Uh, films and m- very often the trick films and the fairies uh, have gorgeous stencil colors. The the the, the program spans. It's, it is just one program of about 50 minutes. Uh, the, the, the Segundo de Chomon program. Uh, it spans his whole career. He started in in Spain and ended up in in Turin. Uh, uh, with the Italian film industry, uh, where he then did uh, special effects. And he's actually the only one who who continued to work in film industry. Uh, Méliès gave up or had to give up in, right. in 1912. And Gaston Vell also uh, stopped very early making films. And we don't know what he did afterwards. I mean, uh, he was he was a magician like Méliès, but Chomon is the only one who wasn't a magician. He was uh, he really came, uh, I think, from chemistry. <laughs> so he has a different he has a, he has a different approach from Melies and Castanvel, who were il, who were magicians basically. And uh, as for Capellani, uh, this is also amazing, you know. Um, I mean, we have been doing uh, uh, Bordenone and 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 Bologna have now been doing film festivals for thirty five and close to forty years. Every year we have been screening silent films, but at one point we thought, I mean, this will this will stop sometimes. Right. I mean, <laughs> they're not making but, any new but, ones. But it's not stopping, Mike. The thing is, it's continuing every every year. We find things. It's amazing. And now, Gosselin Montfort just appears. Sort of, Tamara more or less called me and said, "I have four three, four unique prints <laughs> of films with Sasha Napiakowska. Three of them are by Albert Capellani." So maybe you know, I did ten, ten years ago. I did two huge uh, programs on Albert Capellani, and 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 now we have sort of we can do another installment because so many films have been found in the meantime. <laughs> but the thing is, and maybe I can come back to the 1901 and the 1921 uh, strands. The thing is, uh, if you go by year. Uh, it is 
uh, a means to find films you cannot look for because you don't know that they exist. Uh, if you uh, if you have to go by title, you have to know that such a title exists. You have to know what you are looking for. But if you go to an archive and say, give me the list of all your 1921 films or all your 1901 films, you sort of get a list of 20 films or, or 60 films you have never heard of. And uh, and usually uh, I and uh, Karl Ratschko, who, who now works with me, has been working with me for four years, we simply go to the archive and we look at everything. So, because usually there's much stuff nobody has ever looked at. Right. Now, I see a lot of, uh, there are a number of features that I, I did know the names of. It is in there. There's uh, uh, Camille with Valentino, The Loves of Carmen, yeah. directed by Raoul Walsh. Uh, tell me, what's what are you really excited about out of, uh, this would be kind of the the more familiar titles for people. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, Camille, of course, Nazimova uh, and, and Valentina. I think Nazimova you, you, uh, is really a very important figure, and it's um, it's amazing and and for for many reasons an important film because it is very beautiful. Uh, Natasha Rambova, the art direction is incredible. And uh, this the Valentino and 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 uh, Natsimova are simply incredible to look at. Uh, of all the of all the uh, section, I don't know whether it's now in the catalog in the in the restored section or in the special events. What I think is really interesting is uh, Vampire. Sure. Uh, Vampire by uh, Karl Theodor Dreyer. Because here the restoration is not so much on the film, but on the score by Wolfgang Zeller. And uh, that is also, uh, we have nearly every year we have, uh, we have a restoration of a score, of an original score, and it gives the film back a dimension it had at the time. Well, let's talk about music. What uh, What's the typical way that films are accompanied at the festival? Uh, the typical way is if you do films from 9 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock in the evening. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the typical way is to have pianists. But we have usually, uh, and there are several really, really good uh, silent film pianists in this uh, world. And we have them. We have also always uh, Frank Bocchius, uh, somebody who, for drums, because uh, a piano, I felt, is very good, let's say, up to 1913 or so. But then with big films, actually, you should have a small ensemble. Uh -huh. You should have, you should, should have different instruments. So we are very happy about musicians who play several instruments or who can use, I mean, Donald Sosin or Stephen Horn or people like that who can use different instruments, uh, can make a change. Uh, what You have a different 
let's say, dynamic. If you have one week of silent films or one event, I usually tell the musicians to play as little as possible during the day. Of course, they, are, uh, they, they, they give always their best, but I feel that with such, so much music, uh, uh, it becomes also uh, difficult sometimes. And so this year I will screen a film silent with no accompaniment at all, uh, which is Chute de la Maison Usher, The Fall of the oh. House of Usher. Huh. It, it's an Epstein film from sure. the late 20s, and it's a gorgeous 35mm print from, from the Tokyo Archive, from the Komiya Collection. And this film is so loud. I mean, as a, <laughs> as a visual, it's a visual music. I, 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 I thought, I will, let's try. Let's try to make screening completely silent. But there are always, during the day, we have usual, usually a piano, sometimes a piano and cello or piano and, um, and drums. Uh, sometimes, it depends a bit on the film, uh, we have spoken comments, which is which which can be fabulous for special things, and uh, sometimes, as I said, original score. And this is also a fi- financial issue. But two or three times, orchestra of the town of the of the opera house of Bologna, playing a score with a silent film on the Piazza Maggiore. So uh, this is the. This is like, like, let's say, the evenings are the gala events in the Piazza Maggiore. Uh, the, uh, now we have limits because of COVID, but uh, up to 2019, uh, it was simply free access and everybody can, could come. So it was thousands of people. The, the, the Piazza Maggiore can, can hold, when it's really packed, can hold about 7,000 people. Wow. Yeah, it's really when it's really packed. Of course, it looks full with three thousand. Right. And I think the seats are like two thousand five hundred, but but it can be really packed. So this year, unfortunately, we have to count and to distance. But still, we have the orchestra and uh, and uh, the original score for Vampire. And a new score for Eroticon on the Piazza Maggiore. About uh, the, uh, the human voice or about talking, I, re- I have fond memories. I don't have anything like that now, but probably will have next year again. Uh, we did Arme des Fous, sort of uh, the Crazy Souls by Germain Dulac uh, in to- 2018. Um, this is a lost film. We found uh, uh, in, in the Eiffel Museum, they found something like four, four snippets of one minute each. <laughs> and uh, and uh, in the Cinematheque Française, they had 40 photographs, 40 stills. So we made a visual, uh, we, we made a compilation of the, of the image, uh, fixed and moving, and a text made from the booklet, from the from the scenario, from the from the script and the booklet to go with the film. And uh, two people, uh, uh, Emily Coqui uh, 
and uh, uh, a male assistant uh, uh, read the story in uh, in two voices, and it was amazing. So we had a screening of a film that does not exist, <laughs> and and uh, it it was it, it was really unbelievably good. Uh, we do a wonderful thing in Bologna. We do carbonacle lamp screenings. Uh, wow. That. That is, we cannot screen nitrate in Bologna because of legislation. It, it, I mean, we we could sort of bend the law, but it would it would be very dangerous right. if something happens. And you don't want but, to burn down the opera house. No, we don't want to burn down the opera house. <laughs> and we do, uh, but we do uh, carbonacle lamp screenings, uh, uh, which. Of course, are uh, wonderful because the light is so concentrated and so intense that the projected image becomes nearly three-dimensional. It's really, uh, it's really extraordinary. Uh, and uh, uh, I have we do two evenings this year. One is uh, with Radicet. It's again a Ludetsky print of an Italian comedy, and the other is a uh, Wildcat Lubitsch. Wow. We also for the silent films. As far as possible, we take care to have uh, 35mm prints, which becomes sometimes a bit difficult nowadays. Some archives uh, tend to, to not to give you so easily the 35mm prints anymore. But we have also started to do 16mm. Uh, these are... These can be silent films, but usually it's more avant-garde films, newer films, uh, and Super 8. So uh, we find that it's not only the film, but also the screening technology that is part of film history, and uh, and to give people the experience to see it. Uh, 35mm print screenings with everything that implies and uh, carbonate light screenings and 16 mil screenings and eight people like it very much Links for Il Cinema Ritrovato and information about online programs as it is made available will be in the show post at nitraville.com. Names you seldom hear, faces you rarely see, things you've never known. Yes, New York Confidential tells you things you've never known about their ill-gotten wealth takes you into their lavish homes, tears open the intimate story of their women. And you can spend a few minutes with me. You're way off base, Iris. I see through you like those silk dresses you wear. Man, my name is Stanton. The mission of this troop remains the same. Find the Apaches. How to do that? 
Gonna have to cover as many miles a day as they do. Sleep as little as they sleep, live off the land. Do that, we'll have to travel light. Guess who it is? Ah, uh, Amy McFoyson. No. I give up. It's me. The Pip from Pittsburgh. Oh, Charlie, can't I have the next dance with you? Now, listen. In college, I ran the 16mm Film Society, and when I graduated, I kept a few of the distributors' catalogs that seemed more like reference works than sales brochures. Films Incorporated's Rediscovering American Cinema, which sought to kindle interest in vintage American silent and sound film and had contributors like Leonard Maltin and Roger Ebert, and the Audio Brandon Catalog, a rabbit hole into the world of international film of the 50s and 60s, and the catalog from Kit Parker Films, which had many of the same films as others, but wrote about them with a film buff's love. The 16mm film business is long gone, but Kit Parker just marked 50 years in what he calls the orphan films business, tracking down rights and good material on films that have fallen through the cracks to give them their crack at new audiences via whatever the current medium is today. His recent releases include the new Laurel and Hardy restorations, which we talked about here with Randy Scretvet, other short films from the Hal Roach studio with Charlie Chase, Harry Langdon, and Thelma Todd and Zazu Pitts, the Noir Archives series, and lots of westerns. I spoke with Kit Parker at his home in Phoenix about his half-century of handling films, which also turns out to be a history of how distributors like him helped create a film culture in America, first by servicing 16mm film societies, and on through VHS, cable, DVD, Blu-ray, and streaming. Well, it started out as a non-theatrical distributor. Non-theatrical would be, well, at the time it was 16mm for showings in colleges, homes, libraries, schools, hospitals, churches, prisons, airlines, camps. Oh, and another one uh, were the ships, the uh, like, like fishing fleets and so forth. All of those places used 60 millimeter film. Wherever you see a DVD being shown now out of the house, it started out in the, in the 20s uh, with a lot of show at home uh, rental libraries uh, that was uh, was popular and then later on in the 30s they started to uh, develop film libraries that had more than just comedies and shorts and cut down features and so forth and then in the 40s and 50s it, it really grew and that's really when kind of the film society movement took off was that the way it grew that was uh, in the 60s. Okay. The colleges and universities, uh, I think that would be like Marx Brothers, W.C. Fields. Those come to mind sure. in that era. They were showing them in, in colleges. Uh, and then uh, they started teaching film in, uh, well, universities, colleges, and high schools. Uh it was amazing how many high schools, particularly in the 70s, had film classes. And to me, aside from the fact they profited from it, uh, I, I see motion pictures as, you know, you could equate them on the same level as, as literature. You know, it's a way of communication that affects people. 
So how did you get interested in all this? I was always interested in film uh, and uh, physical film, even from childhood. And I used to collect the 16 millimeter film catalogs of what uh, later on became my competitor. And I started a uh, like a kitty matinee at a, at a community center where every Saturday I ran a, a feature and shorts and a serial chapter and so forth. So I got to know all of those 16 millimeter catalogs very well. I would memorize them and just thought that was the most interesting uh, thing. And then I would get the films in, I booked them, assemble them and show them and so forth. So I did that for, during uh, high school. Uh, by that time I had made up my mind that I wanted to get into that. Um, I was in the Navy Reserve, had no say about that matter. It was Vietnam time. And so while I was in the, uh, in the, on a ship in my spare time, I started creating catalogs and a business plan and so forth. So 50 years ago, last week, I got off of active duty and that the next day I had my catalog. You know, a lot of the studios had their own 16 millimeter distribution arms at that time, or they had established relationships with Films Incorporated or Swank or somebody like that. What films did you have access to? How did you build up a catalog? When I started out, everything was public domain. That's all I could get. The studios wouldn't deal with me and I didn't have the resources to acquire them. Um, and then there were some movies you could buy outright, you know, with a comet, Laurel and Hardy, things like that. Um, so I started out with that. Then uh, I was able to acquire uh, a library of films. I sub-distributed them from a company called United Films. And they had these RKOs and, and others. And I was able to get those, and that established me as somebody who had a copyrighted films as well. Uh, then later on, um, United decided to go out of the film library business. They morphed into what is today BCI Entertainment. And so they had the Columbia Library non-exclusively. Most all deals were non-exclusive in those days. And so uh, I made a deal with Columbia to take over the payments on those films and the prints and so forth. And once I had Columbia, then one led to another and so on and so forth. Uh, I had credibility then. And I always had the best prints. And so that helped me uh, in my success, particularly with colleges and libraries and, and other uh, exhibitors who, who wanted quality. And so our prices were lower, quite a bit lower, and the prints were the best. So it was a, a no-brainer for film programmers to, to come to me. Uh, there were problems getting good prints, new ones. They would come and they'd, they'd be, you know, foggy looking or color would be bad. That was a problem. And because I was fussy, I would send them back and back again and again and again until they were were decent. And after a while of doing that, they knew to send me good ones in the first place. <laughs> right, yeah. And then when VHS came along, that hurt 
some of the, or it hurt all of the non-theatrical distributors, really except mine, uh, because the VHS exhibitor, they didn't care about quality. Uh, so they would, all of those, uh, the ones I mentioned, like the hospitals and churches and camps and so on and so forth, homes, they all switched to VHS. Uh, so I ended up buying some of my competitors. Most of the film companies, uh, they, the, they, the films were just a commodity to them. Could have been shoes, anything. So they didn't care. You know, if, if the movie went out and was spliced up or scrunched or whatever, it, it meant nothing to them and to most of their customers. Uh, it didn't mean anything either or very little. Yeah. Later on, um, I got, well, what is the Republic Pictures Library, which at the time was known as NTA. And they had a lot of movies in 60 millimeter and 35 millimeter, maybe about 5% of their library were, were good titles. And I got everything exclusively there. So got the non-theatrical and the theatrical, and then I established myself there. And then I made a deal with Warner Brothers. And that's really when the company uh, started to, you know, take hold. Uh, I, I took on at first 50 movies from Warner Brothers uh, that they didn't want to fool around with. You, know, you look at this, a studio is interested in the $50 million movie. And they don't care about a $200 booking on Rebel Without a Cause. Or, right. You know, it's a nuisance. You know? So Warner and then others eventually would send me all of their films, the Prince truckload. And I would go through or my team and we would make fix the prints up. And then we would work with uh, 35 millimeter exhibitors. That was uh, very gratifying. Uh, we made a lot of money for the studios, much more than what they were making doing it themselves, and they didn't have to do anything. So that was fun. You know, I had movies I could look at at home, you know, and uh, gratifying is all I can, can say. So that's what, in the 80s, the 90s? Yeah, that would have been the, uh, started in the middle 80s. And then uh, 90s was, uh, you know, the, high, the height of it till the later on in the 90s. Then the studios all took their films back. Um, they just, they told me they would take them back even if I did it for nothing. Gave them all the money. It was a political thing that, you know, one, like a company would take over a studio and that just happened to happen in rapid succession. And so they uh, didn't want other people handling their pictures, like I say, politics. So uh, we declined then, but we, we still had the non-theatrical and some theatrical. So um, I got out while you know, we were still making uh, a profit. Uh, it was hard to say goodbye to my team. They were, were really great, uh, but they all found jobs uh, so that was no problem. That was a relief to me. And by that time, I was just tired of the whole thing. And that's when I moved to to Arizona. Been here ever since. No complaints. Now, you know, as someone who used to 
show films in 16 millimeter. You know, I, I think I finally stopped having the dream in which I have a full house and something is wrong with the film and I'm winding it and I'm trying to find the right film and it's getting slower and slower or something like that. Um, but I definitely, you know, the headaches of 16 millimeter as well as the, uh, you know, the pleasures of it, you know, remain burned in my brain. So, you know, how did you, how did you deal with, you know, some of the, the issues that went with working with real film? We were lucky because we catered towards the customer who cared. Um, You know, we didn't send films to daycares and places where they didn't care. So generally, generally the prints were taken care of. We were, uh, you know, very careful in our inspection and we were placed where needed, but we were, we did very well. Um, I would say minimal problems with people ruining prints. Of course, that happened, and then they get lost, and uh, you know, different fade, and so on and so forth. Right. Um, that one one thing that I, I don't know if your listeners would be interested, but I could give a little lesson on how non-theatrical work, in as much as the various distributors. Uh, are concerned. It was it was difficult to get major studio movies in the 40s because the exhibitors felt they were competitive. So there were in the 40s, 30s, and 40s, it was mostly independent films that were available non-theatrically. And then um, Films Incorporated came along. And they got studios exclusively. So they were the only one allowed to have them. Warner Brothers and Columbia, they licensed their movies to what they call non-theatrical distributors. They would license the film. So multiple companies would have the same films. And it was largely regional in those days, in the 50s for sure, and even the 60s. So You'd, you'd have distributors on the East Coast, and they pretty much distributed within that region. And then you had West and Texas and all these different areas. And then you had companies that started to spread out. Like I was saying, Films Incorporated had branches all over. Uh, they were really the, the big deal. Everybody else, uh, pretty much small potatoes. Uh, so that's basically how it started. And then later on, in the 70s, uh, Swank came along and they were competing with Films Incorporated and they would get movies exclusively. Uh, so they were going toe to toe for years and eventually Swank won out on that. Uh, and they pretty much have everything now. But nowadays, there's no film, it's all digital. Right. They send DVDs completely different. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was doing a lot of theatrical revivals. Uh, I did quite a few for Janus films. They became Criterion Collection. Sure. And uh, I would release my own reissues that I would get from the studios and strike new prints and run them at revival theaters and so forth. And uh, I was able to get a lot of promotion and that, that did well. But Janus Criterion 
they were interested in having their movies get exposure in the major newspapers. Uh, they didn't care about making any money on a theatrical release. It was for the exposure for their, at the time, Laserdisc and later DVD. And uh, so I would uh, I would release those. And the last, there was I got tired of it. It was just too much work. And I did most of it rather than my staff. Uh, so I told them I didn't want to do those anymore. And they called and begged me to take one, one more on. And finally, I relented. I think it was called Gimme Shelter. I'm pretty sure that was it. And so I did that. And it was a success. And they were very happy with all the uh, publicity. And so I got a gift. They sent me a, a box. And in it was a DVD player. And a, uh, I forget what the movie was, but I put it in and I looked at it and I went, it's all over. <laughs> no more 70 pound cans of film or 15 pound, 60 millimeter ones. That's, that's when I decided to, uh, to close it up. All right. So then you go into home video and you're kind of starting the whole process over of what's available to me. How do I get the rights and things like that. I knew all of the people, these independent guys who owned movies and would sell them to the Late Late Show and so forth. That was a big deal before, well, even during uh, cable TV, everybody showed old movies. When I was growing up in the 50s, all the TV channels had movies, syndicated movies. And I I saw these people with these independent movies get rich because there was always a demand so when i got into the digital world well at the time it was vhs just starting to be dvd when i got into that i thought well why don't i replicate what these people did and find movies that were not available hadn't been on tv for decades and I guess I'm a like a closet uh, detective. <laughs> so I would go through and eventually I ended up with hundreds of movies where I found errors and cleared rights and located negatives and so on and so forth. But what I didn't count on was when satellite came in and all of a sudden you had hundreds of channels, they weren't showing old movies. Right. I thought, well, now here's going to be an outlet. Now there's going to be hundreds of places I can sell these old movies. Didn't happen. You ended up with Turner, and that was about it. And you had, you know, uh, um, Cajun Cooking Channel 5, you know, five <laughs> of those were right. no movies. Yeah. And, and so I, I misjudged. Uh, but there was a demand for DVD and then later Blu-ray and now streaming. Uh, so... It wasn't like I expected, but I had a lot of fun acquiring the movies and restoring them and putting them out with special features and so forth. That was gratifying, and people seemed to appreciate what I had been doing. So I continue with that. Now, when you say independent, that's, I mean, it's not like independent like we think of independent films made today that are outside the studio. You're talking about things that were outside of the studio's control because copyright had, had, uh, mostly they were moved. 
they were movies that were owned by the producers and only distributed by the studio. A good example would be Walter Wanger. He had a package of films, Stagecoach, Foreign Correspondent, you know, Westerns and a whole bunch. Well, he owned those movies. So everybody had those movies because he would license them to everybody. Uh, and there was no issue with studios. Um, there were other ones, Alexander Corda. There were, other, were others like that who had weren't beholden to the to the studios. And that's pretty much what I mean by okay. independence. Yeah. Now, tell me, tell me some examples of uh, films that you tracked down the rights to. Uh, well, actually, I was just working on a couple here. Uh, Apache Rifles uh, turned out to be one of my biggest sellers. Uh, Audie Murphy movie hadn't been available for years. We're taking you with us, ma'am. By force, Captain? It's all right. They won't stop us. We don't give them time to think. You don't understand, Captain. I'm not a prisoner. You're not here by your own free will with these animals, these these dog eaters. If your kind hadn't driven the deer from the hills, they wouldn't have to eat what they did. You are confidential with Broderick Crawford. Like I say, I've got a couple hundred uh, of those. Those come to mind because they're very popular. But but there are, are lots. Uh, I did purchase the uh, Weiss Brothers collection. And with it came a hundred copyrighted movies and hundreds of silent movies and comedies and so forth. That was the first big acquisition. And then uh, the second big one was Medallion TV Enterprises. And they had a lot of, of movies, uh, mostly B movies. Uh, the big one was A Walk in the Sun. That was the most popular, which we've we're putting out on 4K now. This is a motion picture of thrilling valor set to the thundering tread of marching feet, to the exultant beat of daring hearts, storming the citadel of gallantry. A story of men who were not heroes, but knew the meaning of heroism. I say we, you know, it's, I'm sitting here in an office <laughs> with a sofa and a dog on it. And I used to have, uh, you know, a whole staff, but with computers, and having other people do different jobs, it's it's just uh, me here. Not as gratifying, but um, it, it keeps me busy. And uh, I should mention that I, there were a lot of, you know, movies here and there that I picked up. A lot of those that were owned by producers or were like based on radio shows or comic strips where the movies reverted to the to the creator of the radio show or comic strip, and I would go find the heirs of the of those people and make them. so there was a there was a lot sometimes it would take years <laughs> but yeah. i was I was successful now. The only problem is it looks like just about every movie is accounted for, so you either have either either the studios have it or I do or you know a couple of other places really uh, so that enjoyment of sleuthing is pretty much sidelined yeah so so how does it work you decide that you want to get your hands on some movie and then where do you go uh, i used to pour through publications that went to tv stations i would go through all the movies and i i would uh, like take for example the audie murphy western 
I would notice that it hadn't been in circulation for 20, 30 years. So that, that tells me, well, why not? So I check, do copyright searches and so forth. Uh, and I find that, well, looks like the producer died. Uh, and there were a couple of other films too. So it, it's, I've got to search out the movies. And, and like I say, mostly that was based on being familiar with what was available and what was out there. I mean, if, if you look at something and it's never been on TV or it hasn't been on home video, there's got to be a reason. So uh, I clear the rights. I have to find who, who owns it, which is usually an heir right. who has no idea that, that they you know, are the owner of a, of a property. And then the next job is finding elements that's sometimes problematic. I've got a few films where I never found anything, but mostly I was able to because the pictures usually were released by studios. And so I was able to go to them or to UCLA or the Academy or so forth. And then came the issue of fixing them up uh, much easier now because of digital. Before, when you were working with film, photochemical restoration was far too expensive, particularly with the mostly B movies that I have. But now digitally, it's uh, it's terrific what you can do. You can go to the original, and I have original negatives on just about everything going back to the silent days. I'm lucky. And we can do a 4K scan, and then a technician can go through and remove the specks and dirt and most of the blemishes. It's nice to, to be able to, to put something out and have it look good. I've been lucky. And I, I know where to search, too. I always read a lot. I just overall decades, I've built up knowledge on where to find things. And I have good relations with archives and studios and so forth. So they're they're cooperative. Yeah. I mean, I assume there's a limited number of places that are qualified to hold on to most of this stuff. So if you know the studio it came from, that tells you, you know, the archive or the lab that's most likely to hold the material, that sort of thing. Yes. In fact, I've got a good story for you. Uh, and this just happened last week. Uh, I had a few pictures here that were released by United Artists in the early 50s, 1951. So there were like four or five of these. And I got to thinking, you know, a couple of these I don't really have very good material on. Uh, so, you know, take a chance and get a hold of MGM, which is United Artists. And they're nice. I've done things for them. They're cooperative. Uh, I said, you know, would you take a look and see if by chance you have negatives or master material on these films well they did and they said well, where do you want them sent <laughs> they had been sitting there for 70 years right and oh yeah yeah we have those <laughs> yep they're here i get that's a long time 70 years i'm glad i didn't get the story bill right <laughs> Yeah, does that ever happen? Somebody says, "Well, if you want it, you got to pay for it." That it's been here all this time. Occasionally, yeah. but they know I'm the only buyer, so 
Right. It's, you know, it's, to get something is better than, than nothing. Right. So, yeah, yeah not, so, not too much of that. So they're fairly realistic. I mean, it's not like the the air typically goes, that must be worth a million dollars with great stars like Gene Raymond in it. So. <laughs> yeah, I had, uh, I, I've had a few of those. Um, I had somebody that, actually, I was talking to somebody the other day. Somebody tried to get me to buy a TV series that I had never heard of. And it, I think it had something to do with reincarnation. And it was hosted by Regis Philbin. <laughs> and and I, this, this man said, well, you know, I've got this thing. It's, it's, uh, it, it's great. And it has Regis Philbin. And I want, you know, it's like Gone with the Wind. <laughs> and he kept saying, it has Regis Philbin in it. Come on. And he, there was one that uh, I wasn't sorry to see uh, get away. But most, the airs have been very nice that I've, I've dealt with. They, they, they haven't been, uh, you know, gone with the wind. Uh, occasionally, occasionally they're that way. But uh, they, they come to their senses. Now, recently, um, you've been involved with a number of things that have to do with uh, the Hal Roach studio. Um, released uh, various uh, Charlie Chase talkie shorts, which are really the best shorts that he did. Uh, and then that fantastic Laurel and Hardy set uh, through your, I guess, uh, I don't know how, how separate it is from your other company, Sprocket Vault, your other label. Um, or if that's right, just, yeah. just a name, I don't know. It's a DVD label. Okay. It, it used to be an Amazon company that I had, but anyway, now it's it's the DVD label. Uh, yeah, those uh, I take on movies now that uh, kind of to put it one way, they fall in my lap. The Hal Roach ones, uh, I knew the people, and I wasn't keen on taking on other people's movies. And then having to pay royalties and there was paperwork and this and that. Yeah, I wasn't real enthused about that. But the people who owned the Hal Roach ones were cooperative and they gave me all of these movies inexpensively. So I put them out, fun doing it. The Laurel and Hardys, um, it was more complicated. I had to deal with other people, but uh, it, that was very gratifying, particularly uh, producing, putting everything together, the wonderful special features and so forth that, that were all created by other people. I just put it together in one collection. Nothing would have happened without Jeff Joseph. He, he was the driving force of this whole thing, both in getting money to create these photochemical restorations and then you know it's it's his baby really and i've known him for years so he knew that that i would be uh uh fair and honest which is not something that is always you know uh extant in the the world of <laughs> home video people sure. not paying and i mean it even my own movies, when I I used to go and there were distributors and so forth, you know, I wouldn't get paid and it, it was a nightmare. 
but Jeff knew that I was a straight arrow guy. So, you know, I, that's how I ended up with those. It, it was a lot of fun working with Randy Spretbett and Dick Van, uh, you know, dedicated people. That that was really a, a crowning achievement, uh, I think, uh, in, in my career, because I started out, my favorites were Laurel and Hardy. So I kind of, like the beginning of my love was Laurel and Hardy, and now I'm 50 years later, I still have the love for them and was able to do something meaningful. They were always in circulation since they came out, both theatrical reissues and non-theatrical, and those film elements were abused, just used again and again and again. They even used, at one time, the original negatives to make 60-millimeter prints. And it's just the sheer wear and tear uh, on those films and and the fact that that UCLA and Jeff et al., you know, we're able to bring those back to life is, is really uh, a wonderful thing. And, and people still enjoy those movies. My grandkids do. Uh, so I've, I've got a big picture of Laurel and Hardy and signed autographs on my, on my wall. She says that I think more of you than I do of her. Well, you do, don't you? But we won't go into that. Are there any other particular films that you were proud to get your hands on and be able to release or, you know, in whatever format? Any any that come to mind? Uh, let's see. There's so many. I'm wondering where to uh, start. A lot of uh, Westerns. Some, some of these uh, I did a picture called uh, Navajo, which was a lot of fun. I spent a lot of time uh, on an Indian reservation creating the special features. This is my grandfather, Gray Singer. He is not my real grandfather, but since he has no family of his own, my mother lets him live with us. He is very wise and used to be a medicine man. Now, some of these are evergreens, like Promises, Promises with Jane Mansfield. Now, I've got them with major stars and lots of uh, not so major. Uh, one of the movies, one of my very pop, most popular ones, Stranger on Horseback with Joel McRae, that's one where I'm having a problem finding film elements. But that's, that's good film elements that I could do something special with. But that, that's a, a favorite of mine. It's a, you know, a really good movie and, and uh, I'd say proud to put that out. He and Danger were right friendly. And that went for the women folks, too. He sure was no stranger to them. But not even the lovingest kind could fool him for long. You'd stop at nothing to save your cousin. All, all that exists, apparently, is a uh, used 35-millimeter print at the BFI, which is what I use. But uh, that I need to do something better, and I... I just don't know where the material is. Yeah, it's uh, that's a thing because it's it's beautifully photographed uh, the color uh, cinematography in Sedona, Arizona. That's one of the few where I'm I'm looking for material. The rest are just 
odds and ends. I remember uh, something that was in your catalog. Uh, you said something about Junior Bonner being one of the best films. And apparently people said, Junior Bonner, one of the best films. What about The Wild Bunch or something? <laughs> and you had to say, I meant well, I, in our catalog. Yeah. Well, what happened was I, I had a, a writer, Dane Wilson, and he was a very good writer and very opinionated. And I gave him free reign on the catalog, pretty much. And so, and people liked that. And, and he would come out with things like that, uh, statements like that. And I, yeah, I had to rein him in quite a bit. <laughs> but, uh, but people, you know, people would write in, what are you talking about, and so forth. And uh, he, uh, I think it gave our, our catalog character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Junior yeah. Bonner. That sounds like him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the catalog was definitely a selling point to me because, I mean, you saw so many of those films from many places. You know, everybody had His Girl Friday or whatever. And, yeah. you know, the ones that just had the most bare bones cribbed from Leonard Malton, you know, entry in the catalog weren't nearly as interesting as as the ones that took some time to talk about what they liked about it or things like that. And, and you know, that's why I saved one of the catalogs from 40 years ago. It's sitting right mm -hmm. over there. So, well, my father illustrated the catalogs up until he passed away. So that would have been up to the early 80s. And, you know, he was a, a famous illustrator and he had was retired. So he had time to devote to that. So visually they were they were quite good uh when i backtracking on columbia when i got the columbia titles uh i got all those used prints from united films well the man in charge of the non-theatrical there his name was dennis doff he gave me anything i wanted i mean new prints yeah uh so i was able to get scope Prints of the Bud Bedecker westerns. Oh, nice! It, really, anything I wanted, he he would uh, strike a new print. I mean, I would pay him for it. Uh, but uh, you know, the other people I dealt with, they they weren't film people. He he was a film person. He recognized the importance of these, and and that really helped uh, getting all of those one of a kind titles, obscurities, and cultish films. That uh, really uh, helped us business-wise and get us into more and more uh, colleges. And it's nice to, uh, I got a note the other day from, from somebody who was, uh, saw films, my, my films in college. And the only problem is these people are now saying they just retired. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I feel like father time here. Uh, I was also young when I, I, I was 23 when I started the company, got off active duty. And the other people in this business were well along in years. So I ended up being the last man standing by many years. Well, so now 50 years of it, what are the, what are the next 50 years going to be like? <laughs> well, I, I actually had a, a couple of offers to buy my film company. And I got to thinking, well, what am I going to do? 
Right. <laughs> there, there, there's no more film to to find. No more orphans. Uh, so I, I let that option lapse, and now I'm doing streaming and so forth. Uh, I have to tell you that film was far more gratifying. I'm a film guy. I like running it through my fingers. Digital was just far short of that in the satisfaction department. Uh, just a, a dynable film guy. So I never get to handle film at all. I've got tens of thousands of cans of film uh, at UCLA and the Academy but I don't even get to touch it. It goes directly to the people who do the transfers and so forth. So I've, that was tough. Just, and, and also the people by and large in the home video business, they're not film people for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, so that's, I had to get used to that commodities term again. Uh, most of them, it's just the business. Right. You're in the content business now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I have a buddy. I go every Saturday and we have lunch and, and watch a film and it has a 16 millimeter projector in the back. So there's the whirr and everything. Yeah. So I, I, I've got that feeling I had when I was a kid, when I would collect films and the first 16 millimeter projector I got and what a thrill that was. I to remember it like it was yesterday and then getting the first movies, the Laurel and Hardy's. And there were these various milestones uh, in my film loving and, and career and so forth. And each one I, I remember fondly. Thanks to my guests, Marianne Lewinsky and Kit Parker. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.